welcome to episode 391 of Cinematary. I'm your host, Zach Dennis, and I'm here with Andrew Swafford, Michael O'Malley, and Z Algazana. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about movies that we saw this week in part one. And in part two, we're going to be continuing our romance series with 1993's Poetic Justice. Um, yeah. If you, if you would like to see the rest, you know, we got the rest of the schedule up at cinematary.com, so check it out. Uh, you can also listen back to our previous two episodes on Dirty Dancing and When Harry Met Sally. So keep up with it. Do we have a retraction we need to make regarding last week's discussion of When Harry Met Sally? No, we, we talked what? about everything. I think we covered it all. <laughs> it was That is a joke for one person yeah. in the audience. Don't spill your wine, buddy. Um, all right, well, let's go ahead and jump into the movies that we saw this week. And I'm, I think this is the most the movie I'm most excited to talk about out of the entire program today. Um, and that is the latest Steven Soderbergh, which is enough for me to be excited. But uh, Kimmy, which just... Dude's been on a hot dude, streak. Like, past, like, 10 years or something like it's just been dude the guy the guy's just just (laughs) just hitting hitting home runs right now man um let me ask a question before we get deep into kimmy discord i'm the only person on the podcast who had oh no nazi you said you haven't seen kimmy either um my i think i said this i don't remember if it was on mic or off mic when we talked about he got game my take on steven soderbergh recently has been like he exclusively makes three-star movies like they're all good but none of them have wowed me. Would I have my mind changed by this movie? This is very much like, so you know how in like the early 2010s, he did a bunch of like genre riffs, like side effects and haywire and stuff like that. Um, This is kind of in that mode where he's like definitely doing like a type of movie, like kind of dipping his toe into a particular genre and kind of infusing it with his own um, like visual and like editing proclivities. Um, but it's not like a movie that is intended to be like a great, like artistic statement just in fun. like a grand, like apocalypse now version. It's just like, yeah, it's just a banger. Yeah. It's super fun. I mean, it's, 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 um, it's, it's blow up, but with COVID and modern technology. Yeah. Which means it's also like rear window mm-hmm. and- um, I mean, that's, there's your description. I don't. I mean, I can I can go through the plot line, but I mean, that's what it is. Um, but yeah, this one it stars Zoe Kravitz, um, as well as um, I'm trying to think. Not not too many other recognizable people. Um, Erica I mean, Rita Wilson is recognizable. Erica Christensen as well. But uh, Zoe Kravitz, she stars as like this. So in this. This it, it's taking place during the uh, like the beginning of the COVID pandemic. Uh, she lives in Seattle. She works for this company that it's similar to like Alexa or Siri, but the difference is rather than just being an AI that that just functions on its own, it has like this human component. And so the job that she does, she like culls through any of these kind of irregularities or stuff that like kind of people flag from this. Um, this you know little hub thing and uh clears up you know what what the what the issue is and moves on um so one day she comes across this violent crime that she uh that she notices that's that's flagged in the system and she's trying to like figure out where who do i give this to to like have you know like have due process follow and unbeknownst to her this crime is something that was perpetrated at the uh at the at the um 
by her by the head of the company that she works for and so uh she's not finding much help in terms of like getting this into the hands of the proper authorities um it's also worth mentioning that she's agoraphobic um she doesn't like want to she's not leaving she's trying not to leave her apartment the only time she leaves is when she's like all right i gotta bring this information to the person and give it to them in their hands um so you also have that facet to it uh zoe kravitz i thought just fantastic in this i mean i i'm trying to th- i'm I, i'm relatively i love zoe kravitz but at the same time i'm a little hit or miss i don't ever feel like she's been given like the material to really kind of work with um Probably the best thing I've seen her in is the the series High Fit the the remake of High Fidelity. Um, I though I am excited to see her in the Batman because that's the plot I'm interested in in the Batman movie. Um, but I think this might be the the best role that she's gotten in terms of like a movie. She really kind of chews this up. Um, but Soderbergh also he ditches a lot of. Um, a lot of his like cell phone cam, uh, handy cam, like uh, way of, of filming that he's done on a, on a lot of recent stuff. This is a little bit more. Yeah, no fisheye lens. Yeah, this, this is, is a lot more traditional. Um, but like, he ditches all that stuff, but then has way more fun with just. He gets way more into his editing and way more into like how he's just positioning things. Like, I think I saw somebody share it on Twitter, but there's just some there's this incredible shot where she's like exited this building and these two guys are following her and it's like they have this like to zoom in to the two guys exiting the building like looking for her and then it zooms out and there's like this brick wall and zoe kravitz is like running behind it and it's like it's not that like it's just a really like very fun shot and like that's that's what the the majority of this movie is it's it's just incredibly creative but in a kind of playful way the script is from uh, David Kep, who has worked with um, Spielberg a lot, he did he wrote like Jurassic Park and things like that, and so you kind of have like this blockbustery Spielberg screenwriter with like the playful creativity of like late period Steven Soderbergh, and I don't know, it's I don't you know, it's not something that again is like reinventing the wheel, but I think like this is kind of like these mid budget. These are the like the mid-budget movies that honestly I'm kind of pissed that I had to watch this in a, on HBO Max instead of like in a movie theater because this would have been such a fucking fun movie mm-hmm. to watch in a movie theater. Um, but Michael, what did you think of Kimmy? I thought it was really good. I co-signed everything you've said, um, and uh, I you know just to go back to Zoe Kravitz, like I think one of the things that's really fun about her performance is that um, a lot of her performance that I think makes it really fun and interesting is that. Um, it's not it's not a really writerly actor performance, right? Uh, a lot of her her acting that like forms her character is her mannerisms and her physicality in the screen. Um, because a lot of especially the early parts of this movie, she doesn't have a ton of dialogue, right? She might talk to someone on like a video chat for like thirty seconds or something like that. But a lot of it is her walking around her apartment, looking out her window, going to her computer, um, and she builds a character out of that rather than, I mean, there's lines of dialogue to give context to her character, but so much of the early goings of this movie is kind of just her, her movie in which like her acting role is what is creating the person in front of us. And I think that that's really fun to watch her do. Um, and she's really good in it um, as this person with um, agoraphobia, which I will say like, um, this is an extremely zeitgeisty movie, which maybe will make people irritated with it um, if they're going with the wrong 
attitude. Like you, of course, have like the COVID stuff, um, you know, uh, and which like wraps into like the agoraphobia that she has, which was present before COVID and COVID has like exacerbated. Uh, you also have like once she leaves the building, there's like protests going on. Um, in the case of this, it's like um, a, a series of protests and counter protests surrounding, I think, like a, a, like a first housing for, for the homeless or something like that. Um, and you also have like the whole like, um, I don't know if people are paying attention to this, but like there was that like spate of uh, incidents at protests in 2020 where like vans came and just like grabbed people. Um, and that appears <laughs> yeah, in this, like yeah. that appears in this movie. Um, you of course also have the, um, the like surveillance capitalism sort of thing that Soderbergh's been interested in for a while. Um, but like kind of like shows how like the pandemic has empowered that sort of thing um, to a scale not previously seen. So it's like a very contemporary movie, but I also felt like unlike a lot of other like COVID era media that I've seen, it didn't feel like it was cashing in on those things necessarily. It was cool that those were always tied to very traditional storytelling beats and character beats, right? It's not like, hey, we've got a movie set in COVID, so people are wearing masks. It's like the COVID element, like, creates very specific tensions within this character um, and creates very, like set pieces and stuff that's like really interesting and could only have been done under those contexts. Um, you have like, again, like there's a very interesting, like the, you know, it's kind of like the, uh, the paranoid thriller trope of like, you're running away. F like our protagonist is running away from nefarious, like men in black and they duck through a parade to like, escape them or something like that's like a big trope. But in this time she like ducks into the protest um, and so again, like it doesn't necessarily feel shoehorned in, in a cheap way. Like it could have, like, I think it's really cool, like how contemporary it is while also still just functioning narratively as a movie. Um, like in a very, in some ways, a very conventionally drawn movie that is just, um, really well done. Um, yeah. And, well, and I, and I think to that point as well, like I've seen a couple, so like a couple weeks ago, I, I saw this, the, the COVID movie with James McAvoy and Sharon Hogan called together where it's literally about like them in lockdown and like the whole movie is about them and their son um, in lockdown. And it's so, it's so infatuated with like the, the tropes of COVID, you know, they're like cooking stuff. They're talking about, uh, like different mask policies. Like it, it's, it's kind of just, um, capitalizing it. Like, like you said, capitalizing on like that zeitgeist stuff And this one, it just kind of feels like a natural part of the world. Like, I mean, this is just, you know, like she, again, like it's, like you said, it just kind of informs her character. Her character wouldn't be, in the predicament she's in really you know in any other way in any other type of situation like COVID kind of perpetuates that um you know they talk a little bit about that that the agoraphobia was definitely something that was um she was something she was dealing with uh, before but like you said COVID kind of accelerated that and added this other dimension to it that has left her kind of in the state that we find her in in the movie and so um, in terms of movies that deal with COVID, I think this is probably one of the better ones because it treats it as just part of the world rather than let's, 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 you know, let's get into the zeitgeist and talk about stuff that people relate to. I wonder what Soderbergh was thinking, like in regards to that stuff as like when COVID was hitting contagion being like the movie that people went to, to talk about it. Like, I wonder if that was an intentional, like, let's, 
let's um, rework the like the pandemic idea into a movie thing for him. It could be. I mean, I don't know how much he. It's always tough for me to know, like with Soderbergh, because in some ways he's like a journeyman director who like just works with scripts from other people almost exclusively. Um, so I don't know how much he worked with David Kemp um, with this, and this may have just been like a, like a serendipity that they came together. But um, I do think one thing that's interesting about this movie's uh, context within COVID is the moment in COVID that it is describing. So it's not the beginning of the pandemic with lockdown. It's like in the months following all the lockdowns letting up, in which um, people were beginning to return to like some semblance of like what they assumed would be like their every like normal life. And so attention within the movie is she's not coming out of her apartment at the same time everyone else is starting to come out. And so there's a lot of conversations that she has where people are like, you're just going to have to come out of your apartment sometime, you know, um, and do this. And I, it's a very, cl- it's very clever because like in, on the one hand, it's about like her mental health with, um, like just her agoraphobia and like all the stuff that's wrapped up in that. But in another way, it's like a sly commentary on like that moment in which there was tension uh, socially regarding, are you going to join people who are starting to come out of like self-isolation or are you going to continue to to isolate um, out of like concerns over like where we are in the pandemic? And I, I think that that's like kind of an interesting thing that I've not seen a lot of movies delve into is that kind of like the moment in which, COVID life started to become normalized and therefore people started to um, like feel more comfortable in it. Um, what would that mean for people who don't feel comfortable in it? Um, so anyway, I think it's good. Um, I'm kind of maybe intellectualizing some of the stuff, but honestly, this is just a, it's just a fun movie. Like it's, it's the sort of movie, like you said, Zach, the sort of movie that would have been great in a movie theater. And if crowds would have seen it, would have been great to see with an audience. Um, so. Yeah, like like that's the biggest thing with it is I wish I know that Soderbergh's working, you know, has been working with like Netflix and HBO Max now and has like been putting his movies out there. But yeah, this one even more than his last few like desperately should have been in a movie theater because it would have been it would have been really fun. Um, and like I said, like it's just it's just it's just it's a real banger. Like it's just a really fun movie. It's like an hour and a half. It, it moves quick. Um, and it's just kind of like, again, like having that pairing of David Kep and Soderbergh kept being like this Spielberg guy, like having those sensibilities with with Soderbergh is just really to me, it's just really fun because Soderbergh kind of like knows how to operate in that world like like Spielberg, but also has like these very like specific tendencies that he pulls on his own which makes him much more fascinating i mean he's he's somebody who can make the oceans trilogy but then make something like um oh whatever that i forgot what the name is of the uh we should all talk or whatever the meryl street movie you know uh, like let, let, them all, let them all let them talk. all talk yeah that movie yeah. was great you know like you know, and so like, like I just kind of like that. You know, you you put somebody who has been who's made like Jurassic Park and Ready Player One and like these big budget blockbuster movies with Spielberg with Soderbergh. Like that's just super fun. So, if you got HBO Max, definitely check out Kimmy. I think it's like I said, it's it's been my favorite thing of like the twenty twenty two movies that I've seen, just because I think it's it's just it's just a real it's a nice it's a good movie. It's a good it's a good time at the movies, you know, or on your couch. Unfortunately. Um, speaking of stuff that's not really a good time at the movies, well, I mean, I don't know about quality, but, um, I wouldn't classify this as a good time. This movie is horrifying <laughs> in a lot of ways. 
Yeah. Um, Red. Let's say the name of the movie. Yeah, Red Rocket. Um, it's the latest from Sean Baker, who I'm sure people have become familiar with, with uh, Tangerine, which we talked about on this podcast, as well as The Florida Project. Um, real quickly, this one, it follows Mikey. He's a, a ex-porn star who uh, is left Los Angeles and comes back home to his hometown of Texas City, Texas, um, and kind of weeds his way in with his uh, wife and his mother-in-law um, and then it just kind of follows him as he does you know does praise on well, people <laughs> he just kind of preys on people yeah he just kind of just exploits all of these different types of people um, and also strikes up this relationship with a um, 17 soon to be 18 year old at who works at a donut shop that he goes to um I know Nazi and Michael, you guys have seen this. Um, anybody kind of want to talk a little bit about their feelings on Red Rocket? I'll let Nazi go since we we just yacked about Kimmy a long time. So I I I love Sean Baker a lot. I'm a I'm a pretty big fan of his like all, all the movies I've seen. Starlet's really good. It's another movie that deals with um, someone who works in pornography, although it's much kinder and. Uh, um, softer than than this movie, but um, yeah, this movie. Like when I saw it initially, um, I thought it looked really really lovely. It's shot on sixteen millimeter, and uh, Sean Baker is like a huge champion of like shooting on film and projecting on film, and uh, his his relationship to like film culture. Has, it's it's funny to watch it shift between Florida Project and now because he's been like a letterbox user, and like, uh, and that it's just I just feel like. But his letterbox reviews are almost exclusively where he saw the movie. He like writes down the. And it'll get like two thousand likes that. too. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and like, he's like a very I don't know like he's he's gone on record talking about how like people on letterbox were mean to him you know and how like like he had to like put something in his bio about <laughs> you know how like we're uh, he's just here to like discuss film or whatever yada 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 like like he i i just i really appreciate that he's um he's really really good at like scumbag cinema right and uh his his him him personally i just feel i i find it i i like the contrast of like i guess his his personal like like style and um, the characters he chooses to like depict in his movies, and so with Red Rocket, the more I thought about it, the more I really, really enjoyed it. Um, it's like I—I I guess I like part of the reason I'm getting into like his uh, his um, his perception as like a like a more personal capacity in like with like the film world is that like this is easily like his most like these are his most reprehensible characters doing the most reprehensible things i think in his whole like filmography and i'm just like i'm sitting there just like god damn um but like when it settled uh yeah i just i i I thought it was fucking great it looks great um the characters are incredibly watchable uh i'll say that (laughs) i do want to talk about how it looks because like I've spent a not inconsiderable time in East Texas, like uh, Texas City. I have relatives who live there in Houston and stuff like that. And I will say, like, in terms of the look, like, this movie nails East Texas, like, to a T. Like, 
honestly like maybe the ugliest part of the United States and it makes it just so filmable yeah. like I mean seriously it's like <laughs> swampland like lit by these giant industrial like like petroleum and gas towers like it is it is like landscape that has been totally like uh just wrecked by like Exxon and stuff like that you know or DuPont uh and it's, it's just like smells bad it looks bad and it looks amazing in this movie like it's such a like the texture of that place is just like completely encapsulated by this movie and i thought i think for whatever other misgivings i have about the movie which i do like that part is like awesome and i i don't know i don't even know if there's many movies that depict this element of texas but it is it got it what i was picking up from the conversation before we started recording is that uh Michael and Zach do not like this movie, though. Ooh, I'm I'm curious. When, when is the oh, other going to drop do. here? I I'm kind of like I don't really know how I feel about the movie because yeah, on one hand, it does it does look great. Like you have these scenes where you know you just take the description of of East Texas, uh, especially this part of East Texas that Michael just gave, and you can kind of just plaster that on the. Uh, Simon Rex character in this because he's also somebody who just like he all you know he he uh, so much stuff has been like you know taken out of him that he's just kind of a husk that's uh that's just kind of bellowing there also but you also have these sequences where like he's riding a bike down the road and you have like those the giant you know petroleum like you just have the gas and the the, the smoke and everything and there's something kind of like quietly like Kwanaskachi type beautiful about it that you're just like what is going on here <laughs> yeah it looks almost sci-fi to be honest like if you think about like uh i don't know like this is a weird reference but like the um the beginning of the like jj abrams star trek movie where like um uh captain kirk is just like riding around in like the american heartland but like on the horizon there's like these really futuristic like space ports and stuff like that it kind of has that feeling to it which is really surreal um, the like mix between like you know dirt roads and that sort of thing and then like high yeah but really at the same time like like we said like this this character he's just he spends the entire damn movie just preying on people and just exploiting those people and like you and specifically grooming a not a minor in Texas but a minor in Tennessee would be in Tennessee uh which is in, in, including you know multiple graphic sex scenes with her that you're just like at, like after like the third or fourth one you're like okay we get it um and like i don't know like it's one of those like oh well it's just kind of this 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 tough character that you're supposed to sit with but you it, it kind of also has like this this simmering um below the surface trump's america kind of because this i it's barely below the surface like trump is on tv constantly is it is it like is it, it's is it two it's a 2016 yeah. like like it, it's 2016 it's, it's not he's yeah. not the president yet he it's when he's yeah. running it's when he's running and and i and i don't uh, think he ever yeah. lands or i don't but again more maybe i don't know what he's trying to get at with it it's more he just kind of uses trump as a as a trampoline to kind of portray these types of people i think he's just another it's just like yeah i don't know like i like the movie like overall i'm positive about the movie but my positivity is a mix between me feeling really really like extremely positive towards some things like i think simon rex is really good in this movie i think um 
the person who plays Strawberry, like the 17 year old, she's really good in this movie. Um, Susanna Sun. Yes, yes. Name. Yeah, she's great. She's really good. Uh, the landscape is great. Like, honestly, like on a screenplay level, this movie's really interesting because it's really propulsive and interesting. But then you have like stuff that doesn't work very well for me, like um, the Trump stuff. Like, it feels, I don't know, maybe this is uncharitable, but it feels very like surface level, like hashtag resistance sort of stuff where it's like, Trump sure is exploiting these people just like industry has exploited these people and just like Simon Rex is exploiting these people. Like, I don't know, maybe there's something deeper going on there, but it didn't seem like that insightful to me. And I guess if you're going to like invoke something as iconic as like Donald Trump, like Make America Great Again 2016, I would like to see something that I haven't read in like a Slate article or something. And I didn't feel like this movie transcended it on that level. Uh, Circling back around to the the sex scenes as well, I was very, very, very uncomfortable with those because it's like the actress is 20-something years old, but she's meant to portray a teenager, and I don't know. That's just weird. Like, I know, I don't know. I know different people probably feel different ways about that, but, like, I'm watching what... I, I wrote this on my letterbox review. I'm watching what, if were it to happen in the state of Tennessee where I live, would be considered a statutory rape, like, multiple times over the course of the movie, and I don't know. That's weird. Her character is really interesting, like... He's trying to groom her, but she's also very clearly, like, aware of what he's doing. And she's trying to, like, kind of use him as leverage to, like, get out of uh, her current situation um, in, in uh, like, as, like, you know, someone who's, like, at the tail end of high school and has not a lot of prospects. And I think that's kind of interesting. But... She is, but then at the same time, like, he never, it's so, like, it's so, um stuck on him that you're never really given an opportunity to let her kind of like let you know explore that to a degree it's very much fixated on him question about the sex scenes so there's like a recurring discourse on twitter that like pops off every like two or three months or so about like the extent to which sex scenes are necessary in cinema and like the hard line stance is like no they're never necessary you can just imply the characters have sex and move on I tend to agree with the opposite side, which is that like sex scenes can tell us a lot about um, the characters and can change, can like affect plot dynamics and also can kind of affect the sensual experience as a, as a film, as a film goer. Right. Um, I'm wondering if there's any sort of like justification you can imagine in Sean Baker's head for why he would like let those play out so many times. I think so. I mean, it makes one you of hate the sex scenes involves like hate Simon Rex's I mean, character more. Yeah. 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 There's also the one in which they film, they make a sex tape, right? And he's like teaching her like porn, like how to how to be a porn star like it like it's not like without narrative justification if you want to go there, but I also think that like I don't know, like I said, I think different people are going to feel differently, but and maybe this is just a personal thing, but for me, I was kind of miserable watching, like, and I know that's the point, right? Like, this is, like, how you're supposed to feel if you're a good human being. Like, it was kind of miserable to watch, like, a, a teenager being groomed into the adult film industry when she is looking to do other things, presumably. Like, he, that's not, like, her her ambition, right? Like, she's clearly being manipulated by this person. And the sex scenes, like, are sometimes interesting in that context, and other times it just feels like, I'm being invited to partake in this exploitation, right? And I I don't know how I feel about that. I, I don't know. Like, uncomfortable doesn't mean it was bad, but I was uncomfortable. So, um, it's, it's hard to, like, 
it's hard to 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 give like a perspective or like to to lean one way or another about things that isn't like preachy or like i guess like uh offensive in a way that isn't like um i guess empathetic and uh sean baker i feel like goes to great lengths to uh portray people like empathetically who are very unsympathetic like on the surface do we think maybe like the sex scenes are so graphic as a way to like present a comment on um the trajectory that leads like very young impressionable girls to like this type of industry because like there you run the risk of if you criticize sex work or the sex industry that you're criticizing like the people who perform in it or the people who take it but you can criticize something and like not think like it doesn't need to be in society right but like you criticize it in a way to like improve it or improve the lives or conditions of the people in it and so i would never think that sean baker is like sex negative or he's like criticizing anybody in sex work but there are lots of issues with the porn industry um the dynamic between simon rex and Susanna sun is like if not the most popular, one of the most popular like categories in pornography, right? Like it's being overwhelmingly made like, because that is what people like gravitate to when it comes to like pornography. Right. Um, like barely legal or whatever. Yeah, yeah. 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 Like it's, it's, it's very much like the standard. Right. And so clearly this content has an audience and it's like, how comfortable are we like wrestling with how much we enjoy it, but we usually enjoy it in private. Yeah, I think that that's I think that that's fair, and I I wouldn't accuse the movie of being like anti-sex or anything. I Andrew is in the in the context of I don't I guess this is part of how I don't know how I feel about the movie because I know how I'm reacting to these things and feeling so like uncomfortable while also kind of recognizing like okay here's the point he's making while also at the same time in my head flipping around and thinking like. Well, like, what's the value of the point that he's making? Like, in the end, like, I come around, like, I come out of a movie seeing, like, a person having, like, attempted to prey on, like, a teenager to coerce her into the, like, uh, uh, like adult film industry while also being shown his shortcomings. Like, I don't know, like, I mean, it intersects, like, a lot of the discourse around, like, problematic protagonists, right? Like, going all the way back to, like, whatever, Taxi Driver or, like, you know, all that sort of stuff. And I, those are always hard conversations to have because there's, there's like two competing things going on. There's like intent um, and like the like philosophical like reasons for things happening. And then there's also like how those philosophical things are manifested in the movie. And occasionally like there can be a disconnect between those things. And I'm not sure if there's a disconnect here. And I'm, I, I saw this movie a month or two ago and I'm still trying to sort out in my head, like, where do I think this movie lands in terms of, I understand the intent and it makes sense to me and I can like work through why some of the decisions were made. But then when it comes to like the, like uh, the on screen, like, uh, like presentation of those ideas, like I'm, I'm wrestling through it and it may just simply be that I'm, maybe I'm not as interested in the subject matter as he thinks I am. Maybe it's like, like I was talking about with the Trump stuff where it's like, maybe I'm wrestling for some deeper meaning that's not there. And like, you know, it's simply just about like, Hey, these are how people become exploited. And I maybe think that 
I'm I'm looking for some like deeper rationale than that, and that's like I can't get past. It's that. also interesting, you know, not to completely spoil the ending, but the in, he also ends this not as explicitly in fantasy mode as like Florida Project, but also kind of in fantasy mode type thing. You know, like that whole like that ending is is very much evoking like the 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 kind of it hangs in there like it just kind of it's a, it's a hanging ending um but i lo- i actually really like the last act of this movie i think that you start seeing like the the chickens coming home to roost for for the characters and it is like riveting i think um but yeah i don't know it's 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 uh, yeah it's definitely one that i've been like wrestling with and um i don't know it's 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 I think I favored the other two of his recent ones more than this, but at the same time, like, like what, like I mentioned, like Simon Rex is his character's detestable, but he's very good in this movie. Um, but yeah, Red Rocket, it's streaming and or not streaming like on a streaming service, but you can rent it and places like that. I'm sure it'll be streaming soon. It's a 24. So they're usually making stuff accessible. If you're interested in like Sean Baker's like overall project as a filmmaker, like, the use of non-professional actors or the use of like uh, like underseen locales in movies, like the use of like uh, lots of off- sweet zooms. Yeah, those there is a lot of really good zooms in this. I it's interest. It's a if you're already bought into like his like proclivities as a director, like I think this is an interesting um, like wrinkle within like his broader career, and I would recommend seeing it on that metric and. Um, as as much as I'm still wrestling through yeah. some of the other stuff, well, let's toss it over to another you know stand up director and the Z. I'm going to toss it over to you to talk about some Kurosawa. Uh, yeah, uh, Keija Musha by Kurosawa. Um, I just read this. I I didn't realize it. It shared the Palm Door that year with um, all that jazz, which I have not seen. But here is very very good. Yeah. Um. So, I, I I think this is a this is a really really good movie. Um, it takes place in feudal Japan. I also just recently read this. Um, Keiji Musha is the Japanese term for political decoy, literally meaning shadow warrior. Well, first off, who here has seen it? I I have actually not seen this one. Not seen Keiji Musha. Mm-hmm. Um, it's on the list. Yeah. No, it's it's very good. It's it's very very well made. It's um. I guess I should give like a brief synopsis. Um, it's set in the Sengoku period of Japanese history and tells the story of a lower class, lower class criminal who is taught to impersonate a dying uh, Daimo to dissuade the opposing, opposing lords from attacking the newly vulnerable clan. Um, it's, I feel like if he hadn't made Ran, this would be a lot more favorable to me, but I mostly view this as like a very, very good like precursor to Ran. Ran is very similar um, have you guys seen Ran? Yeah, I love it. Yeah, uh, yeah. Like I think Ran is fantastic. Like it's 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 easy masterpiece. It's it's so so good in like every area. And this movie is also very very good in all the ways that Ran is. I just think not as ink like good. Um, the story with the two clans is like it's very very plot heavy. It's like a full three hours. I feel like it could have been cut. Um, personally, like I wasn't as invested in all of the like individual pieces. But uh, the set design is like very iconic, for a good reason. It's 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 incredible. It's like just 
it's it's they're um they're like during these dream sequences of the main character and they're very nightmarish and uh Andrew, you mentioned this earlier, not on purpose, but uh, big quiet on vibes with, with the set design. Very spooky, very, very colorful. I love, um, there's always like the transition from black and white to color with directors who are around for both. And uh, yeah, I love how like Kurosawa leaned the fuck in to, to color, um, which again, he would like embellish and ran. Uh, so yeah, those are like my primary feelings. It's just like a much, it's like, like for any other director, like it would be like a high, like point in their career. But, um, for Kurosawa, uh, I just, it was, it, it's, uh, it's not a minor work by him, but not one of my faves, but I, I think it is very, very good. All I, I saw it years ago and all I remember are the colors and set design. I've not seen Rand, So I remember that standing out is like, this movie looks cool. Yeah, it's been one on my list because it also, like, like this one even more than like Ran, um, feels like he de- he just like really leaned in on the color, and it's it almost goes to like this like, like there's screenshots of it that I've seen that just look like it's like in a music video for a metal band, um, like he just goes hard and you're just like hell yeah man, like this looks awesome. Um, it's been sitting on my Criterion channel queue forever. I need to just like I'm, I've been waiting to like set aside a Saturday or something and just there and watch it. Kurosawa's got kind of like the same issue that like Martin Scorsese or Steven Spielberg had, which is that at a certain point in his career he forgot how to make movies that were not two and a half hours. And like I think that's one of the reasons I've not seen Ran either, because uh, that movie's pretty long. But uh, I remember this movie really moving. Like this is a fast movie, so. Um, that's funny. I like very much felt the length. Uh, yeah, yeah. I like, I don't know why. Um, cause like Rand flies by, like I wouldn't take a minute away from Rand and I'm very like, like I hate any movie over 90 minutes unless it's like, I, like really, really good. But, um, but yeah. Uh, I wonder if the, if I saw Rand first before I had seen this movie, if I would have felt the same way. I, cause it was, it's kind of, I guess, weird to have seen this movie and not Ran, because Ran is like far and away the more like memorable, or at least like the more iconic and, and famous movie. Speaking um, of feeling the length on late Kurosawa movies, I've seen Ran twice, and the first time I watched it, I was bored to stone by it. Um, and then I watched it again with my Shakespeare class last year after we had just read King Lear. Um, and it was gripping. Uh, so like, that's my rec when you do get around to, to watching Ran Michael, like maybe refresh yourself on King Lear because like the way in which the Kurosawa kind of interpolates it is really Yeah. I remember you telling me that you were doing that and I didn't even recognize or realize that it was meant to be a Lear adaptation. I, for whatever reason, that oh, yeah. has never been on my radar, but so step, step one to enjoying Ran, get your teaching license. Step two. Watch or read the longest Shakespeare play or one of the longest Shakespeare plays. (laughs) Done. Um, All right, Andrew, you're going to take us home. Yeah, I will be brief. Um, I have a bit of a retraction to make uh, because I believe, I don't remember if it was on our top 10 of the year episode or an episode before that. I think it was the top 10 when we were talking about the new Dune. So we were talking about Denis Villeneuve's Dune and I mentioned that you know 
since the release of Dilly didn't Dilly Dilly Villeneuve since the release of uh, Denny Villeneuve's Dune wow that is a lot of syllables that all sound alike um, people have been reassessing David Lynch's Dune and saying that it's good actually and I said no don't do that David Lynch's Dune is horrible um, and I, I sincerely believe this I watched this with Michael by the way yeah, uh, several I years like ago and I was like finishing the David Lynch filmography and we were just like in agony watching this movie uh, it made zero sense it was often uh, not great to look at it was three hours I was so lost I felt betrayed by David Lynch uh, and also like he had taken his name off of it at the end it said directed by Alan Smithy I mean I was kind of vindicated in my dislike of it because like oh David Lynch doesn't like it either um, but I need to eat my words because I rewatched David Lynch's Dune um, both after watching the Villeneuve movie and I watched it with a friend of mine who is really into the book Dune and just finished the book Dune um, and was able to kind of like answer questions I had along the way. And I actually found myself enjoying it quite a lot. Um, and I think I would have... Um, I would have been able to understand the broad strokes of it, even if I didn't have like a Sherpa explaining it to me as I went through, um, specifically because I had seen the Villeneuve movie. And um, I said this when we talked about the Villeneuve movie, but I think that the greatest strength that, that movie has going for it is the way that it kind of um, doles out information very carefully to the audience. Like Dune is a story that you know, the book has a glossary and an appendix and stuff like that. Like there's so many proper nouns and like interlocking plots and subplots that it's very easy to get lost. Um, and the Villeneuve movie, like gives you just enough information in each scene to understand the next scene. And it kind of like leads you on a, on a bit of a breadcrumb trail in that way. And the David Lynch Dune does the opposite where like it opens with a character like fading in, like you're looking at space and then the character's face fades in over space. And then they just kind of talk at you for like somewhere between two to five minutes. And it's just like all proper noun, proper noun, proper noun. Um, and so like that is, once you kind of like immediately get lost, it's easy to never find your bearings again. But like once you do have a general understanding of like what is the conflict of this movie, who are all these houses, how do they relate to each other, what are what is like um, ultimately at stake here, um, it's it's actually like fairly easy to follow. You just have to like have a bit of background going in. Um, and I know this is not true for you, Michael, because like you had read the book in the past and still struggled with it. Um, but I also should say that like there are two cuts of the movie. And one reason why I struggled so much with the first time I watched it is that um, there are two cuts of the movie. There's a cut that's two hours and 15 minutes. And there's a cut that's three hours. And I think when we, Michael, you and I sat down to watch the movie, we watched the longer cut because we're like, you know, this is a movie that the director has mixed feelings about. We should watch the longer cut because that's probably the one the director likes. Um, that is not the case. Uh, David Lynch uh, kept his name on the two hour, 17 minute cut and took his name off the three hour cut um, because the three hour cut is like really tough to get through. I, I think the, um, the story is that he made the two hour, 17 minute version. 
I think David Lynch made the two-hour, 17-minute version. Like, he edited that down, even though he wasn't super happy with, like, studio interference and whatever. But then the studio, like, made him put more stuff in. Like, he had all this footage laying around, and I guess they thought that maybe if you put more footage in it, it would make more sense. That is not the case. It just felt like a bigger desert to get lost in. Um, but I, I think that the the two-hour, 17-minute version, like, goes by much more swiftly, um, and it, it probably does better with, like, Dolion information as well. Um, it's just kind of, like, night and day. I didn't, like, love it, love it, love it, um, but compared to my first time, which was, like, again, just I felt like it was unwatchable. Um, it felt like a new movie to me. Um, but what was your question, Michael? My question is, so you began like saying like people uh, are reevaluating this movie and that it's good actually. And you're giving like not a glowing review, but a, you know, moderately positive one. Like, is it positive enough that I should rewatch it? Um, Or is it something that I can just be like, huh, maybe I was wrong, but I'll never know. (laughs) Um, I think you should save it for a rainy day when you, uh, when you feel curious to, to open that, box of maybe pain again um i will say i read uh, the david lynch autobiography that came out a few years ago and apparently according to him his original cut was four hours long so um he found i guess a happy medium with that two hour 15 uh right yeah they spent so the the villeneuve movie is like half of the novel right and he's gonna make a part two that the second half of the novel and the lynch movie spins like the first 90 minutes or maybe hour 45 minutes just on the stuff that's in the Villeneuve movie. And I'm like, what are we going to do with the whole second movie? Um, and the, the friend of mine who was watching with me who had read the books said that he actually did a pretty good job capturing the second half of the story in a very brief amount of time. But I imagine that the four hour cut was like a lot more of that, um, a lot more like battle stuff. I don't know. I didn't, I didn't know about the three hour cut. Um, I had heard about Lynch's Dune for years. I thought it was going to be fucking awful. Um, I only watched it because of Villeneuve's Dune. Villeneuve's Dune is fine. It's super well made. I didn't care about any of the characters, especially Timothy Chalamet. Um, maybe it's maybe it's because like I just find Kyle MacLachlan so much more appealing as a screen presence. Oh my god, I I could not disagree more with this point. So like, Yo, okay, so that I, that's his acting I debut. Love Kyle MacLachlan, like I have so much love in my heart for Kyle MacLachlan. Um, he is so miscast in this movie. Like no, he's, he's the perfect. thing that keeps me from really liking he's, it. Okay, like, here's why it's perfect. It's his acting debut, <laughs> and he's he's portraying like a like a like a really like like young naive like character like i think it's such a fitting like uh a role for him but he looks like a 30 year old man like the whole time okay that i give Um. to you but (laughs) but i i guess like the newness of him as an actor like is what really sold it for me and i just really really like watching him and his i I thought he worked super well as for the character way more than chalamet like chalamet like looks like he's 20 like seven forever Mm, I think that Chalamet does a really good job with the role. Like when he's just sitting around, like watching videos about sand, sandworms, it does feel like a kid doing his homework. Um, whereas with Kyle MacLachlan, um, when he's watching a video about sandworms, I feel like he's an actor waiting for his co-stars to walk in the room and start talking to him. You know, like um, 
it, it just feels very stiff and forced to me. I mean, it sucks because he's the main character. He's in most of the scenes. Um, I guess I was more taken with kind of the set dressing and the stuff around Kyle MacLachlan and also like the special effects that Lynch brings in to evoke some of the psychedelic aspects of the story. Mm-hmm. Which it's, it's really I do think Lynch is much ignores. better at that. Yeah. I like that. I will say like Lynch, like the book Dune is very weird and Villeneuve is like classes it up for like, you know, a kind of mainstream audience. But Lynch, Lynch is keyed into that weirdness in the book. Yeah. Um, that's what I like about his, like he just, he disavowed it so much. I thought it would be like fucking boring, like complete studio interference. And when I finished it, I'm like, okay, this is clearly compromised. Clearly like Lynch didn't have final cut, but it's still very strange. Like the overlays and like the way he cuts it are like, as unsettling as like um not as but like it's it's definitely like lynch's unsettling kind of kind of style um i thought it would like i just thought it was like completely uh sanitized of his style but you could still very much see the vision um and i loved the way the fucking uh what the the the, the armor looked I think like the oh, way it aged. You're talking about when they go into like invincibility mode and start yeah. fighting. They look it, like uh, Minecraft characters. Yeah, yeah it's very fucking good. hilarious. It looks, <laughs> I, I love the way it looks. Yeah, there is like a camp appeal to it as well. Like there are parts of it where I'm more laughing at it than laughing with it, but that's entertainment value too. I I just enjoyed my time with it a lot more this time. Well. I believe it's available, so again, we'll, we'll be waiting to see if Michael reassesses it at some point, so we'll just wait for that. Um, all right, we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back talking about Poetic Justice after this. Hey, Cemetery listeners, Andrew here. At the midpoint of this week's episode, I want to direct you to some of the non-podcasty things we have to offer. First, if you're a fan of what we do, please consider supporting us on Patreon. For $5 a month, you get three things. A shout-out at the end of every episode, the opportunity to choose a movie we cover on the show, and our Patreon-exclusive podcast, Film Theory and Chill, in which we look at a piece of theory once a month, deconstruct it, and then just chill out, talking about whatever else we have going on. All Patreon support goes solely to paying our writers for their reviews that go up on our website every Monday. Also, at the bottom of Cinematary.com, you can sign up for our free newsletter. Every Sunday, we send out an email with the latest podcast episode, Patreon content, and written reviews. This is perfect for those who want to keep tabs on what's happening, but might be too busy to see the posts when they go up. Before I go, one more quick thing. The easiest thing you can do to support us is to give Cinematary a rating and review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the show. This is quick, free, easy, and we will read your review out on the show once we get it. To recap, consider donating to our Patreon, sign up for the free newsletter, and please give us a rating and review. Thanks for listening. Let's get back to the show.
series with 1993's Poetic Justice. Uh, written and directed by John Singleton, the film stars Janet Jackson, Tupac Shakur, uh, Tyra Farrell, and Regina King. Still grieving after, after the murder of her boyfriend, hairdresser Justice writes poetry to deal with the pain of her loss. Unable to get to Oakland to attend a convention because of her broken down car, Justice gets a lift with her friend uh, Lesha, Lisha, Lisha, Aisha, Aisha. And Aisha's postal worker boyfriend, Chicago. Along for the ride is Chicago's co-worker, Lucky, to whom Justice grows closer closer with after some initial problems. But is she really opening her heart again? After the success of Boys in the Hood, Singleton signed a three-year contract with Columbia Pictures. And as of early May 1991, he was writing Poetic Justice with the goal of finishing by that summer. Singleton was inspired to write the screenplay after considering the impact of murder in the black male community and the ways in which it affected girlfriends and families. The script was uh, reportedly based on actual events, and he intended to write his own poetry for the film, but instead chose the poems of Maya Angelou, whose words influenced his own life. Singleton had written the role of Justice with Janet Jackson in mind. After striking up a friendship with the singer, Singleton asked her opinion of his screenplay and surprised her by offering her the lead role. Singleton wanted Jackson to gain 10 pounds to change her appearance and asked her to watch Italian neorealist films, quote, to convince her that she didn't have to be glamorous in this role. Um... Singleton discussed the 20th anniversary of the film in 2013. He's uh, in the interview. He mentioned that in 1993, black female leads were rare, and he wanted to give a voice to young African American women. He also revealed whose idea it was for Janet Jackson to wear the now iconic box braids, saying, "Quote that was a collaboration between myself, Janet, uh, dance choreographer Fatima Robinson, and dancer and a dancer named uh, Josie Harris. Josie had the braids in Michael Jackson's Remember the Time video. I brought her and Fatima and a couple of other." dancers over to hang out with Janet and they all became friends and I said why don't we try and do Janet's hair like Jossie's hair we got the hairstyle from Harlem and just put it in a West Coast movie uh, Jada Pinkett, Lisa Bonet, uh, Monica Calhoun, and many other popular actresses auditioned for the role of Justice, though Singleton knew from the script's draft the role was solely intended for Janet Jackson. Ice Cube was offered the lead role of Lucky, but turned it down, stating that he was not at a point in his career that he wanted to play in uh, a lead role in romantic movies. Um, when the film opened in July of 1983, Cineplex uh, Odeon initially decided not to release the film at its Hollywood theater due to fear of violence. Rita Walters called the decision racist, and they agreed to delay the, the release until July. Around the country, five violent incidents occurred during uh, around theaters during the film's opening weekend, including a homicide outside a Las Vegas theater. Wait, oh my gosh, what about the movie is inciting violence? I'll let you connect the dots on that one. Um, I mean, and, no, but I mean, you just said that violent incidents actually happen. So, what happened? Uh, hype around Boys in the Hood, you know, falling falling into the the next movie. I don't know. Yeah. Um, in 1993, Variety said John Singleton's follow-up to Boys in the Hood and the screen debut of Janet Jackson cannot sustain the scrutiny and expectation that inevitably follows a conspicuous first film. Uh, Poetic Justice is a hermetic inner-city love story elevated by resonant social commentary. It has an obvious appeal to a core ethnic audience, but faces a challenge tapping into the mainstream. In 19... 19- 
1983, the New York Times said Poetic Justice is a mess, but it's an adventurous one. It's a movie whose unrealized ambitions are in many ways more interesting than the goals achieved by the success of Mr. Singleton's first film, which endeared him to the Hollywood establishment. In 1993, Roger Ebert said Boys in the Hood was one of the most powerful and influential films of its time. In 1991, Poetic Justice is not its equal, but does not aspire to be. It is a softer, gentler film, more of a romance than a commentary on social conditions. Janet Jackson provides a lovable center for it, and by the time it's over, we can see more clearly how Boys presented only part of the South Central reality. Um, As you can tell, there were uh, definitely a specific type of film reviewer in 1993 at the major establishments. (laughs) Um, But yeah, let's talk a little bit about Poetic Justice. Um, uh, Michael, let's start with you. I liked it okay. I, I, I feel like of those reviews that you mentioned, the one that I'm connecting most with is the New York Times one that kind of calls the movie like unsuccessful as a cohesive whole, but has a lot of interesting like little ambitions that it's trying to do that I thought were kind of neat. Um, so like, um, not to out Andrew, but I know he's not a fan of this. Uh, and part of that is because he doesn't really buy the central romance. And I'm kind of in that camp where I don't know that the romance 100% works. It, I don't know. Like I, I it's doing this, like uh, it happened one night thing where it puts two people who are bickering at the beginning of a road trip. And by the end of the road trip, they've um, realized that they have affection for one another. And I, I can understand the dynamic at the beginning of the road trip. I can understand theoretically the dynamic at the end of the road trip, and I'm not sure that the movie does a great job of connecting the character beats to get to that ending. Um, that said, I really enjoy um, the like individual beats of this movie um, that are really interesting and kind of tangential to the romance. Like the opening is like it's like 20 or 30 minutes where they're just in LA and we're getting to know the characters, and I think that that's all really interesting. Um, the Italian neorealist. Uh, lens like that uh, Singleton had for Janet Jackson that makes sense to me I didn't know that watching it but it has that sort of like um, we're just kind of like like um, filmmaking that is halfway as interested in the environment itself as it is in the characters um, and I think that that is true throughout the movie there's like once they get on the road trip they stop at a few different locations and the sole justification for stopping at these locations seems to be like we thought it would be cool to film a scene in this location. Um, and locations not necessarily being like geographic locations, but like cultural locations, right? Like there's this one moment where they're at like a, like an African heritage festival um, that I think like just is a really interesting texture that I liked a lot. Um, there's another scene in which they're at like, uh, probably the best scene in the movie is when they're at like a, they like crash a, a barbecue, like a family reunion barbecue, um, like a black family reunion. Um, and kind of presumed to be like cousins or whatever. And I just think they're just like hanging out at this, at this family reunion and like intersecting these different family dynamics. And I just found it like really interesting and lived in and, and fun. Um, I just, I, I, I can't weave together a character arc for some of these characters. Uh, I see what they're trying to do with the characters. I, it just doesn't work. Like these little individual, like episodic things don't string together. Like the, uh, like a romance with an arc for me, but I individual pieces I think are really strong in this movie. Uh, Nizzy, what about you? So uh, that's actually a pretty appropriate segue for my feelings. Um, it is not an overall like like strong work, and everything does not work well. Um, but I'm quite I'm quite high on what did work, and uh, 
Michael, like you were saying with, uh, you know, the, the, the lived in stuff, uh, as like a portrait of, you know, like, like, like black social life in the nineties. Like, I think it's very, very strong. Um, I think Regina King's character is so well realized and like, she's absolutely like a, like a type of person that like everybody like has met before. And Oh, can I can I jet in one time? Like, I think my favorite moment with her is where they stop at the gas station, and outside, uh, Tupac is like talking to this trucker about like you think Garth Brooks is slapping or whatever. Uh, and then inside, she's like complaining that they don't have like um like uh, the same drinks as like in the the like central LA gas stations that they would go to. And like, I think that's like a really fun moment with her where she's like just kind of yelling at the gas station, and then she ends up getting like fruit juice and. Like, I don't remember what the, yeah, and so she, like, drinks half of the fruit juice and, like, pours the rest in, and she's just, like, sipping on this, like, gas station fruit juice for, like, the rest of the movie. I I really like that. Sorry, go ahead, Nizzy. Uh, yeah, I feel like, um, when, when characters are allowed to just kind of interact, and I can, like, I wouldn't be surprised if, like, um, there was a certain amount of, like, improvisation in this movie with, like, the back and forth. Um, I feel like the, when it's like weaker is when the characters are like, like clearly like performing like a plot point. Right. Um, like, you know, there's, there's like a lot of, uh, like the, like the, the scene, the soul scene with Tupac and you're introduced to his, um, his baby mother and like her situation and what she's like. And that seems like pretty messy, uh, like stylistically. There's like a lot of shouting. It's not. It's not very. Uh, it's like it's a. It's a kind of um, a vague, thin kind of uh, like archetype, I guess, for 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 like that type of character. Um, you like the strung out single mother, like black single mother. Yeah, yeah, and like. Um, it's yeah there, that that is not like a very compelling or uh you know like engaging kind of depiction but like the the more specific stuff where they're just kind of like vibing off of one another um i enjoyed all of that and yeah i guess i guess like the plot just gets in the way <laughs> mm-hmm. so my thought in response to a lot of what you guys just said is that it seems like what the movie wants to do what the movie is trying to do is present characters who are kind of stuck in one particular um, type of environment an environment that's like very like struck by poverty and like uh, the people in that environment are kind of facing a lot of like psychological distress as a result of that um, and so like everybody's kind of antagonistic towards each other in, in ways that they wouldn't be if they were more um, like financially stable and then allowing those characters to have some sort of semblance of of peace and happiness when they're on the road away from that and then they're on and in their in those kind of more quiet um and like i don't know um more enjoyable uh, locales uh, they're able to kind of share feelings and experiences with one another and you know uh, eventually a romance blooms um, but I just don't think that either one of those things are particularly well done um, like the the whole idea of like people living in dire straits being you know extremely stressed out and antagonistic towards each other I'd feel like is kind of vaguely and thinly done like you said Nazi. Um, 
And, you know, I'm teaching uh, Lorraine Hansberry's Raising the Sun right now, which I think is like exhibit A on like how to do that really well. Like the first scene in that play is like just family members at each other's throats for no particular reason because they're really stressed out about other stuff. Um, and then like the fourth or fifth scene of the play is those same characters kind of like um, – uh, playfully teasing one another, saying a lot of the same things they would say in scene one, but now doing it in kind of like a loving, jovial tone because they like they got money in the uh, in the interim between those two scenes. Um, but like it just it feels very like thin, hollow. Like let's just kind of throw a bunch of stereotypes on on screen and make these people scream at each other um, for most of the movie. Um, and then by the time the romance happens for me, it's just kind of too little, too late. Like I was, I I do admit I was texting Michael for a little while. I was watching this movie, um, and part of my text was like when are these people going to have a conversation? Like when is Janet Jackson going to actually meet <laughs> Tupac's character? Cause it was like 45 minutes into the movie and they had not even left for the road trip yet. They had had one conversation where he, he hits on her and then they're kind of off doing their own thing for, for the rest of the time. I will say um, that scene is very, very good. I do like that first scene. Meet, I like, like that scene a lot. The, the tension and the way they like build the joke up to Tupac, like, I thought like very spicy. You could feel it. You could pal- yeah, pal- and they're like they're towing a line of appropriateness that kind of reminds me of some of the things we talked about with the Shah Rukh Khan series um, last year. Um, that that makes for very engaging drama. Um, but most of the time, they're they are together on the road trip. It's just like. Tupac yelling at Janet Jackson and calling her a fucking bitch. And like, how many times do I need to hear Tupac call Janet There's Jackson a fucking that. bitch? Right? Like, it's yeah. the the whole like will they, won't they, we're bickering like rivals turned lovers thing, it just feels like it's not that like fleshed out or well written to me. Um like I agree with you. Yeah, and, go ahead. Oh sorry, go ahead. No, I mean I I was just gonna say that like when Harry met Sally is another interesting comparison point. Um, because like those characters go through like many interpolations of what their relationship and slash friendship even is. Um, and you kind of like feel a lot of the, the, the dynamic shifts in how these characters feel about one another. And, and you can tell when they hate each other as well, but like the, the hatred they express for each other is just like so much more interesting. (laughs) I feel like than than Tupac calling Janet Jackson a fucking bitch. And once they're, they're, hatred for one another transitions into like friendship slash romance it's like one conversation they have one conversation where like tupac kind of reveals some he like is is a bit vulnerable and reveals some trauma he's experienced as does she and then it kind of like just we're supposed to buy that they're in a romantic relationship from there like i get that part of the appeal of tupac as a rapper is that he's like this very hardened macho figure who is not afraid to kind of bear his soul and and talk about the the more emotional uh, side of his life uh, but that doesn't really feel like it comes across in this movie to me um and i also don't think like just in terms of how i conceptualize how relationships work um, just because you can be emotionally vulnerable with someone, you can share that that form of intimacy doesn't necessarily translates to I want to have a romantic relationship with this person. Like 
that I didn't feel a romance happening at the center of this movie. And then all of a sudden they're, they're together at the end. And I'm like, where was the romance? I thought this was a romance movie. I want to propose like what I would imagine would be like the intended like effect that I don't think is achieved. Like I already said, like, I don't think the romance connects the dots from beginning to end, but like, so here's what I think is like the imagined effects uh, or imagined like arc of the movie. Like if you were to like sit the John Singleton down and maybe this is incorrect. So uh, John Singleton can haunt me from the grave if I'm wrong. Um, but uh, the, uh, so I feel like at the beginning of the movie, Andrew, you talk about like, the kind of shared trauma of living in like um, inner city poverty, right? And the especially shared trauma of like specifically like an African American community with like the history of violence and history of like oppression and all that sort of stuff. Um, and as a result, you have like you mentioned, Andrew, you have characters who are aggressive and even abusive toward one another. Um, and over the course of the road trip, I think what we're supposed to see is by taking people out of the specifics of their like environment that they've grown so accustomed to and presenting them with like more positive iterations of black community, I think that they're supposed to start seeing a sort of solidarity among each other because of that trauma rather than like using that trauma to attack each other as they are at the beginning of the movie. And then by having shared trauma, you can have like a shared intimacy with one another that then grows into like a recognition of like each other as people. Right. Cause at the beginning of the road trip, like Tupac is like extremely misogynist, like not just like in the kind of like colloquial, like, you know, using bitch or whatever, but like, he like says all women are the same because they all just bleed once a month. Right. Like that's like reducing women down to that. Like, and I think like he is, like hypothetically he's supposed to recognize the personhood of Janet Jackson as they go and in doing so recognize how to truly love a woman. I think Janet Jackson is like in a similar situation with Tupac where she has not necessarily dehumanized him, but she's like really trying to work through her grief at her previous boyfriend being killed and trying to process that through her relationship with Tupac. And Tupac is also trying to process his feelings about women by proxy of the like kind of stereotyped, like, welfare queen, like, strung out on drugs, like, single mother, like, that is his ex, um, and uh, that he has to, like, you know, take their kid away from or whatever, like, and I think by the end of the movie, it's less like uh, when Harry Met Sally romance and more of, like, uh, a, a romance in which, like, there is, like, found, like, mutual solidarity and mutual humanity among, like, between these two characters, and that intimacy becomes sexual and, and romantic, and I don't think the movie connects to those dots, but if I had to guess like what the movie is trying to do, like that feels like what's happening, uh, even if I don't think that it's all there. And I like that idea of like seeing different versions of like black solidarity and and like ways of of dealing with that shared trauma. Um, I guess I was just too like against the movie by by the time that stuff finally rolled around that um, it didn't. Um, I don't know. Like I was, I wasn't having these like galaxy brain, like, Oh, I get it moments. I was just kind of irritated <laughs> by the characters. It's um, earlier when you were telling, when you were first telling us how you didn't like the movie and you initially said um, you didn't buy the romance. I was like, I kind of gasped and I was ready to immediately cut you off 
just because I was thinking about the first scene with them and how good it was. And then I thought about the rest of the movie, and that's why I stopped myself. <laughs> and, right. And that's that scene feels like it's a totally different relationship than yeah, the rest that, of the that, movie. That's what I was going to say. It's such a shame. It almost sets you up. Like, it almost sets you up because, like, that is, like, the most, like, kind of, like, nuance and subtext you see from them. And that's, like, how you're introduced to both of them. And you're like, oh, like, this is going to be, like, such an engaging, like, rapport between the two of them. And, um, unfortunately, that's just not the case. I don't know if it was a result of, like, direction and a combination of, like, um, acting abilities. But I'm I'm shocked that Janet Jackson didn't have, like, a career after this. Like, a, like a bigger film career. Like, why was she not in more stuff? She, she was in this, and then she was in a bunch of music-like films. And then, like, Tyler Perry movies. And, like, I think that's insane because she's, she's so charming and, like, so enjoyable to watch on the screen. And like, like I, I feel almost feel like her character is wasted because she's like, she she clearly doesn't take no shit. But I feel like what she brings with like her screen presence makes it not like as stereotypical as it could have been of like, you know, like a young black woman who like stands up for herself. Um, and yeah, I just I just think she's she's really lovely. And, and I, I do you guys like have any idea why she hasn't been in stuff? I mean, my guess would just be that she I don't didn't know, maybe want her... to. Like, I imagine he, she was more focused on her music career, but I have no idea. Yeah, that's, that's very plausible. Yeah, I don't know. Michael Jackson's kind of in the same boat in, in the sense of, like, he has some really interesting film roles, like in The Wiz and stuff like that. And then he doesn't really capitalize on that later in his career. I mean, maybe it's just being, like, a superstar. I mean, Janet Jackson was, like, multi-platinum artist by the time this movie rolled around, and maybe she just was more interested in music. I don't know. Now, Tupac, though, he was in a lot of movies in, like, the final years of his life. Um, and he's also, I think, a great, great actor. Like, I especially like him in the movie Juice. Um, and it's just, I mean, the reason that he's not in, he didn't have a long career, of course, is that he was killed. Um, but that's really sad uh, to to think about, like, the great Tupac performances that we were, um, that, that we didn't get to see, right? I do think that this is a good Tupac performance. And I think that there are scenes in which he's doing some, like, grade A acting, like, I don't think this part works structurally within the movie, but when they finally get to their destination, I guess this is spoilers, and he finds that his cousin has been shot. Um, like the the scenes immediately following that, in which he's going through grief, um, like he really embodies that, and I think that he sells that emotion really well, even if it's a scene that I think kind of comes out of nowhere and doesn't really square. Like I don't know, it, it, it structurally feels misshapen within the movie, but like him in those scenes is he's just he's completely selling it and i think that he's great there. i i do this thing where i'm always curious of like what the main character's first line is and his is pretty great it's uh it's 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 he's he's the mailman um walking up to a house and this homeless guy who's been asking people for change asks him for change and he's like uh, I ain't got no change for you, but I got some stamps. You can send yourself a damn job application. <laughs> yeah, that's and like good. that's how that's just how we're introduced <laughs> to him. And like just seeing Tupac in like a like a mailman's like cost. I did costume, laugh outfit, when I saw him in uniform. the mailman outfit. Yeah, fucking hilarious. Like like. Yeah, I love that he's he's a mail. Rom coms have always have like really bizarre jobs for their characters, and they're usually kind of like boring fantasy jobs. Like I'm a style editor at like a fictional magazine in New York or whatever, but like we need more rom-coms with mailmen. Like, it's a good, it's a good dynamic. Everybody calls him Mr. Postman. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's Tupac and they're just like, Mr. Postman, what's going on? And, and it's There's tough. also, 
Andrew texted me about the scene. I love it too, where he he chews oh, uh, yeah. out his buddy for not being in the postal workers union. Yes, <laughs> comrade Shakur. <laughs> um, I think you know in terms of performances, uh, Nizzy, you mentioned her earlier, but Regina King as well. Just like does you know she's somebody who has had a very you know story career since and even started breaking into directing but like this one as like the best friend to the romantic lead role like she she definitely she definitely you know does does her own thing you know in, in this role i think she's really great as well as as like the as like the friend to janet jackson and that's lead that's character. hard to do like you yeah. think like the the friend of the main character isn't important because they're not the main character but i think that's what makes them harder to like cast um well you gotta have a be good because you you know you you're gonna be entertained if the friend is as entertaining as the lead character right like by design they're not supposed to be as memorable right but um i just think there's like a lot of specificity that like is required for something like that and yeah regina king is just really really good at it yeah um you know, I think I think, and this might be intellectualizing it more, but the thing that I'll, about the movie that I liked is that it kind of goes. It's working within the romance narrative, but also seems to be kind of going counter it because, yeah, it's not like it's not like when Harry met Sally, but there's also like this artificiality to when Harry when Harry met Sally or name a kind of rom com in the same realm. But that you know these characters are are real but they're also kind of not real you know they you kind of have like they they're going from point a to point b and they're going to change over the course of the story and like i don't think these characters necessarily change in the same way you know i think it's tough like they like they're they're products of the environment they're coming from i think that's what probably john singleton is is most interested in it, you know i think ebert kind of hits the nail a little bit when he goes you know this is just another reality in south central in the 90s um and so yeah you don't you know you like it's you hate listening to tupac yell fuck you bitch to uh janet jackson but then she's also firing back fuck you like like when when she he kicks her out of the car like i i kind of like that because he's yelling fuck you to her and she's yelling fuck you to him and the the two of them are in the back going what the hell is going on right now um and then you even have scenes where everybody's yelling fuck you to every like there's so many scenes in this movie where specifically with chicago where uh chicago chicago will say fuck you and then regina will gina king will say fuck you to him and then janet jackson will say fuck you to him and then tupac will say fuck you to him um and like i to me it just feels like i honestly like i feel like these characters are more real than like a when harry met sally or something like that because they're you know they they like just not everybody is as like constantly clever as billy crystal's character yeah, is and, like, and, and, sound, and so right? like and so like there's something to, you know that's why you do go to the romantic comedy genre like you want that that you want that kind of clever wordplay and stuff i get that but at the same time like these feel like real relationships that you would run into like i was thinking about that going through this road trip and going this isn't very fun because you have just these characters who you get to you kind of go along and then you just immediately get into an argument 
argument, but you're at the same time you're like, haven't you ever been like on a road trip or something with friends? That's what that's that's every every you know most of the time that's what happens is people are getting in arguments about something where it, it doesn't erupt to this level. But I'm like, this is kind of what it's like. Um, and like the road trip aspect of it was interesting to me because it's also yeah you have these kind of you have these pit stops into I think it's a movie about spaces because you have these pit stops into. Um, predominantly black spaces but I think the majority of the road trip you're in white spaces you know like you have like that scene where Regina King breaks up with Chicago her character breaks up with Chicago um, and they have this like picturesque vista on the that, that you're looking at uh, on the side of the road and it's not that's not necessarily like a setting that you would imagine to see like black characters um, silhouetted against and like it's uh, like, and so it's kind of also like you have this dissonance of these characters who are also kind of banging up against these these spaces that don't necessarily um, fit what what their what their personalities are kind of exuding and like I think the my favorite scene of the movie is when Tupac and, and Janet Jackson finally kiss because like there's like this really you have this really kind of serene beautiful setting and it's just quiet and like you can kind of just feel like like everybody finally exhaling a little bit and um, to me that like that worked because it finally was like this exhale because I think a lot of the movie is so charged that when it when you finally get these kind of small moments to exhale you realize that again like the point of the movie is it's these characters getting out of the the rolling environments that they're stuck in and that to, to me that's what's effective most about the movie I think it's interesting because I agree that like these are characters that are they don't fully embody like archetypes or even like that kind of art style that defines a lot of like, not just rom-coms, but like romances in general. Like I'm looking over like the list of the movies that we're talking about in this series. And all of these characters are in some ways like kind of arch archetypes. And that's like by design, right? Cause that's like the appeal is these characters that are painted with really broad strokes, but can have like these kind of intimate moments that feel universal and like related to everybody. And like this movie kind of half-heartedly gestures at that. Um, but do, you know, kind of gets lost in the, maybe intentionally lost in the weeds of like some of the stuff that you're talking about, Zach. But like at the same time, if I'm looking at the movies on this list, like this is the only couple that has appeared mass produced on a T-shirt that I can imagine, and like maybe only second really? to Titanic um, has become like a kind of memed, uh, like object of like uh, icon, like icon status, um, which is interesting since like the movie itself kind of eschews. Like I like that kind of romantic iconography in like a movie like When Harry Met Sally is very self-aware in the like we are putting these people into like romantic iconography and presenting them like the the friggin' poster of the movie is like these two characters just just towering over the like the New York City uh, skyline right like in When Harry Met Sally you know to indicate like these these characters are like embodying larger than life roles and they tower over the city and uh that uh, you know i think like the the image that catches on from this movie is just like tupac and janet just like hugging or whatever like that's what you see on like t-shirts and stuff in it but somehow like that has become more iconic than the movies that try to be iconic um in this series and i think that that's kind of interesting that that happened you know i didn't know a lot about this movie going in except simply like the kind of cultural ephemera that this movie has kind of become represented by. Uh, and I was surprised at how like 
uh, like messy this movie is and how much it, like to Andrew's point, doesn't really embrace like completely like the like romantic side of a of a of a romance. And like, and that's I think that 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 became apparent to me reading not just the reviews that I read, but also just the reviews I was coming across. I was, I, uh, uh, you know, I was just looking it up. Like I just, um, you know, it's just, it's a, it's a factor of like only having white men writing reviews uh, at, at that period of time. But it also just kind of showed that like there wasn't a meeting at the level, at the, at where this movie was, this movie was doing what it wanted to do. It wasn't catering to the genre. It wasn't catering to the mainstream audience. It was just kind of doing what it wanted to do. And I don't think like a lot of those critics met it at that. And I think that might be where a little bit of it, it kind of keeps you at a little bit of an arm's length because it is, it's not, it's not feeding into that. Um, it's not feeding into that traditional romance mold or rom-com mold it's just kind of it's very it feels very it feels like it's very much doing its own thing whether that's effective you know in your opinion or not and like to me i kind of i guess i that that worked on the wavelength i was working on because um i don't know i i just appreciated that i felt i felt like whether or not i i bought the the relationship or the romance in this um, I felt like I understood these characters more than I will with anybody else in this series. I feel like when you when you have a debut like Boys uh, Boys in the Hood, like cr- critics are very like uh, uh, unkind to your to your follow up project, like or just 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 people in general, you know, like. I'm not saying they they well, wanted they, to dislike. They it. want another boys in the yeah, hood, yeah, you know, yeah. like that's they they don't want something else. They want another of that. Um, random thing to what Michael is saying. Um, <laughs> uh, I feel like uh, Jack and Rose are pro- like definitely on some shirts. Like I feel like they uh, definitely. I don't know if I. I think the most iconic image of anything we're covering is like them on the front of the boat. And like her, him holding her, but I don't see it on the T-shirt like I see it on, like I see Poetic Justice. Yeah, I guess what I—that's what I meant—is like Jack and Rose. Like Titanic is the other one where the couple themselves have become like iconography that has been decontextualized from their movie in some way, or like the have become shorthand for their movie. Um, but like, and but like that movie aspires for the those characters to become that, right? Like you know. When you have James Cameron filming that scene with them on the front of the boat, like he he's aspiring for them to be iconic, and I don't think that this movie like shows that same level of intensely trying to create like these cinematic moments that you can like like will be memorably stuck in your head as like a synecdoche for the movie itself. But for some reason, like these characters have become that. Might also be because they're both celebrities in their own right outside of the. Oh right, yeah, they're also like like giants in like other industries, I guess. Yeah, that helps. (laughs) Also, I guess when a movie is kind of like maligned upon release and it develops cult status, like that is like that that requires like the the like the intentionality of whoever's claiming that like art, right? Right. So obviously, like... like those shirts are gonna move. There's like a whole interesting history of like movies that were reviled or not particularly liked upon release by the critical establishment or even by the culture at large. You know, they may have got like I think Janet got a Razzie for this movie, which the 
the the like the the Razzies don't make sense, but like I think they well they they also they nominated Ben Affleck for the last duel this year, so they don't yeah. Know what, what do you mean? That's like, like top five performances of, of of last year, like. But I do think like, uh, and I mentioned the Wiz earlier with Michael Jackson. Like that's another movie that like had that sort of thing, but within the black community, I think these movies hold a much different status, and you know. I think I that's true. Is. I think that's true of poetic justice as well. Is that like I don't know if they're like cult movies so much as like the mainstream discourse of those movies was not done. Like to 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 Zach's point, like the mainstream discourse for those movie for this movie wasn't done by the people this movie was embraced by um, necessarily or made for. Yeah, and uh, there's like all sorts of movies that were intended for black audiences but had mainstream releases and therefore were included in like the mainstream discussion that I think have been reclaimed by like the broader discourse as like perhaps like the people who grew up with this movie, um, you know, not caring about that discourse have now, you know, given, been given more voice. Any, uh, any final thoughts on poetic justice before we wrap up? Yes, I have two. Yeah, go for it. Uh, one, according to IMDb's trivia section, uh, back to my point about improvising like lines. Like apparently, uh, Tupac improvised a lot of his lines with um, Jesse, the salon owner, which is pretty cool. And um, that's Q-Tip at the beginning, who gets killed. Who I should have realized by his voice, but I didn't make the connection. Also, which is pretty cool. I, you, you mentioned the first meeting um, between Tupac and Janet Jackson is great. The the whole opening sequence is is fantastic. Yeah, yeah it's really yeah, it is. It is the like. I like the uh, movie in a movie. That yeah, we're in for yeah, a with the uh, before it reveals that it's yeah, with, dude with like the face like Billy the Zane. forehead and the, yes, yes, it's Billy Zane. Zane. Yeah, yeah. yeah, Billy we'll Zane. See yeah, Billy yeah, yeah. See him yeah. again next yeah. week. Yeah. We'll see him Billy next Zane. Time. Yeah. No, that is good. Yeah, it was. I, I like that too. I like when movies do that. They shoot the seeds for the fake. Movie. Well, it's funny. You know, they mentioned he mentioned having her watch Italian neo-realist films. That felt very. That felt very like Rossellini. Like just that. Like the whole setup and the editing of that sequence. It felt very like in that realm as well. So it was. It was very good. I enjoyed the the opening. I did. I did too. Like that's probably the most like showoffy sequence. A lot of this movie is really like laid back and lackadaisical. But that first that opening scene. No, he directs. The yeah, fuck man. Out that's of it. like a. He's just like you know going like turning all, up all of his tricks and it's great yeah the like direct pov of um tupac like staring at janet jackson's breasts and then immediately followed by her eyes seeing like the gun like terrifying andrew any thoughts or just meh moving on moving on moving on wanted to like it a lot more than i did i went in with high expectations so I'm sad that i didn't oh also, one last thing. Um, have, are you guys aware of John Singleton's last movie? It's called Abduction. It's from 2011, and it stars Taylor Lautner. And it was his final film. Uh, and I, I, remember, I remember when that came out. I didn't know it was John Singleton. I'd never heard of it. It actually has a crazy cast, like Lily Collins, Sigourney Weaver. Um, yeah, like, I just, I just don't know how that happened. But, but yeah, that, that, that's all I wanted to say. Just interesting um all right well that will wrap up this episode of cinematary you can find us on facebook at facebook.com slash cinematary and on twitter and instagram at handle at cinematary as well as letterbox at letterbox.com slash cinematary where we list all the movies we talked about in this episode 
Uh, if you'd like to support the show, head over to patreon.com slash cemetery. Thank you to our patrons, Cam, Chad Newsom, Corey Willingham, Harry Eskin, Candace Sisson, Ron Hayes, Titus Arthur, Tyler Chandler, and Whitney Rio Ross. Thank you so much for your patronage. Next week, we will be continuing this series with 1997's Titanic, which I'm not even going to put any... I'm sure you've heard of Titanic. So, um, until next week, we'll see you then. Bye.